Let us look again at the words which are to be found in the 8th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans in verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 in the 8th chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself or himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now we've been through the various statements in these two verses, and we have seen the significance of the terms which the Apostle uses and implies. And we have seen the great comfort and consolation which the Apostle gives us in this statement. It is a proof of our ultimate, complete, and final salvation. So that far from being discouraged by the fact that we at times may find ourselves not knowing what to pray for, not knowing the what to pray for, as we ought, and finding ourselves only capable of groaning, far from being discouraged by that, we should find in that a proof of our calling and election, a proof of the fact that we are the children of God, because as we've already seen, the Spirit is the cause and the author of these groanings in us, and he only does that in the saints. He maketh intercession for the saints and for nobody else. Therefore, the presence of this in us is a proof of the fact that we are saints. And that is a proof that we are the children of God. And that in turn is a proof of the fact that our ultimate salvation is guaranteed and absolute. In other words, it's a part of the great theme which the apostle is developing as he goes on in this great eighth chapter. Well, now then, we've really finished our exposition of these two verses as such. But it seems to me that we can't quite leave it at that. The statement is such an important one, such a vital one, and at the same time, such a very practical one, that I feel we must draw certain lessons and deductions from it. This whole question of prayer can be, and often is to many Christian people, a difficult one, one that causes them to be troubled. And uh, it seems to me, therefore, that if we are to reap the full benefit out of this great statement which the Apostle makes, that we must now proceed to draw certain general lessons from what he teaches here. Now, here are some of them. Let's look for a moment at what we may well call the mystery of prayer. Now there is in prayer undoubtedly a very mysterious element, and people are often puzzled by this. The puzzle arises in this way, that there is a kind of seeming contradiction here. We uh, are told to pray, and yet we are told at the same time that these prayers of ours are originated by the Holy Spirit, and that God knows the mind of the Spirit. He understands the working of the Spirit and what the Spirit is saying and giving us to say. 
Now the Spirit acts as an intercessor in us and gives us these prayers as we saw last week. And that indeed, even beyond that, this intercession of the Spirit within us, this prompting of us to pray, is something which is done according to the will of God. Very well, the question that arises therefore in the minds of many people is this. If that is so, why pray at all? It seems to them to be a kind of circle. Here are we praying to God, and yet it is God himself who puts in us what to pray for through the Spirit. So that they tend to feel that there is surely very little point in praying at all. Not only that, we are told everywhere in the Scripture that God knows all things. God is omniscient. He knows what we stand in need of before we even ask him. Therefore, what, what point is there, what purpose is there in praying? Now that question is raised here because we are told that it is the Spirit who makes this intercession within us. The prayer is given to us, as it were, by the Spirit. Well then, what's the point of it? Well now, here is a question I'm sure that has often presented itself to you. There are many Christian people who, uh, for this kind of reason, have come to the conclusion that there is no need to pray, that all you do is to go on trusting God, and that there is no need to pray at all. But clearly this is an obvious fallacy. The same kind of point could be made like this, and some have even fallen into this error. I refer again to Philippians 2.13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The argument is that because it's all originated by God, well, what need is there for us to do anything at all? Well, now, what is the answer to this kind of difficulty? And it seems to me that here are some at any rate of the answers. The first is that we are clearly commanded to pray. It's always a good thing to start with a clear commandment. Whether you and I understand prayer and its meaning or not, when we've got a clear commandment to pray, well, then it is our business to pray. We should never argue with a commandment. Now, here's a point, of course, which I could uh, generalize. There are people who constantly get into trouble with this uh, kind of point. There are people who misunderstand a doctrine like the doctrine of election. They say, if God elects those to salvation and he knows who they are and they're going to be elect, well, what's the point of preaching? You've often heard that argument, I'm sure. If it is to be, it will be. Well, now, what's wrong with that, of course, is that it is God who commands preaching. It is God who sends out preachers. It is God who gives them the ability to preach. It is God who calls men, all men, everywhere to repent. Now, they, these are clear statements of the Scripture. And we must never allow any kind of logic, or what we may regard as logic, to carry us to a point in which we find ourselves contradicting either plain commandments, instructions, or indications of the scripture. And therefore I say this is really a sufficient answer in and of itself. That we are not only commanded to pray, we are even taught how to pray. And our Lord himself gave that instruction as we all remember. Now that is really sufficient in and of itself. But we can supplement that with various other answers. And here's a very important one. God not only ordains the ends but also the means 
to that end. God is not concerned only about the ultimate result. He is equally concerned as to how that result is to be brought about. Now, there's an obvious illustration here. In nature, we know very well that ultimately it is God who is responsible for all the crops that are reaped and harvested in late summer and autumn. It is God by sending the sun and the rain and so on that produces all these results. Yes, but we know equally well that God has ordained that the farmer should plough and harrow and break up the ground and sow it and roll it and do many other things to it. God ordains not only the ends, but the means to the ends. Don't ask me why, that's a part of the great mystery of the will of God. To me it's very wonderful that God has arranged to do things very often through secondary causes. And you get that constantly in nature and in the whole of life. God works through means, and he is as responsible for the means as he is for the ends. And here we therefore come to this point, that clearly prayer is one of God's own appointed and chosen means to bring us to that ultimate glory that awaits us. Now, it's obvious that he could have brought us to that end without this, but he has chosen to do it in this way. It's the way in which God teaches us. It's the way in which he trains us. It's the way in which he brings us to a greater knowledge of himself. It's a very wonderful way of teaching us. He puts us in positions where we don't quite know what to do and we turn to him. And often in these crises we get to know God in a way that we'd never have known him otherwise. And thus he has appointed prayer as one of the ways in which he gives us an increasing revelation and knowledge of himself. And he trains us up and he perfects us, tries us and tests us in order that ultimately we may come into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself. In other words, for me to deal Finally, with this particular section, all I'm trying to say is seen most perfectly, of course, in the case of our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. Here he is, God the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, in perfect communion with God, and yet he spent much of his time on earth praying, praying to God. Now, very well then. If he prayed and had to pray, if it was a part of his being made perfect as the captain of our salvation, how much more necessary is it in our case? So the very fact that the Spirit himself, as it were, indicts this prayer and acts as an intercessor within us in this way is far from being an argument against prayer, a great argument for prayer. Now I trust at this point is made very plain and clear. I'm emphasizing it for this one reason, that it is unfortunately the case, it's true to say, that very often people who understand certain of these doctrines of grace most clearly are the people who are most guilty of misunderstanding them to this extent that they cease to pray. I know many people who are very orthodox but who don't have prayer meetings and who spend very little time in prayer in their own personal lives. That is the point at which you've left your doctrine and are just following your own logic and your own intellect, intellectual formulations. It is an utterly false deduction. 
to understand this teaching truly should make us pray more than ever, not less. Very well, there is what I call the mystery of prayer. And if your doctrine, my friend, is not making you pray more and more as you go on, you'd better examine yourself and your doctrine. This great apostle was a man of great prayer, and similar teachers have been men of prayer throughout the centuries. The second point I take up is this one. I call it the wrongness of advising all and sundry to pray. Now, here again is a point that seems to me to come out here. He maketh intercession, we are told, for the saints. I just touched on this at the end last Friday night, but I haven't got time to develop it then. He maketh intercession for the saints, not for anybody else. He doesn't put these prayers into the mind and the heart of anybody else. It is only for the saints. There is no teaching anywhere in the Bible that the Spirit helps the unbeliever in this matter of prayer. None whatsoever. It's entirely confined to the saints. Indeed, we remember that statement made by the blind men referred to in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel. He said a very profound thing. God heareth not sinners, he said. You remember this man had been healed by our Lord and the authorities were criticizing our Lord and regarding him as a blasphemer. And this man who was so ignorant, he replies by saying, God doesn't hear sinners. But he's evidently heard this man. Therefore this man cannot be a sinner. But there is a proposition which is true. God heareth not sinners. Now there's an idea abroad today, it seems to me, that we can always tell people to start praying immediately. A good deal of this is done on the wireless and the television, and especially in times of difficulty and of crisis. The whole country is called upon to pray, and people talk about having a national day of prayer and things like that, and invite everybody to crowd into places of worship to pray to God. We did it during the war, and there is a desire on the part of some to do something similar at the present time. Now, surely this is a matter which should be examined in the light of this kind of teaching. We surely need to instruct people as to how to pray. And we must show them that any man at any moment is not in a position to pray to God. It's not enough to tell people to pray, we must teach them how to pray. The disciples, you see, living in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, realized that. They watched him pray. And they began to feel they knew nothing at all about this. So they said, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And a man who's never felt any need of being taught how to pray is really telling us that he never has prayed and he doesn't know what prayer is. Owing to our unworthy and imperfect ideas of God, we all think we can turn to God whenever we like. But the Bible teaches us very plainly that that is not the case and that we need much instruction with regard to this whole question of prayer. The first question we must ask is this. How do we obtain entry into the presence of God? Now, if you've never asked that question, I say that you've never prayed. You can't have. May I use an obvious human analogy? If you wanted an audience with the Queen in Buckingham Palace, the first thing you do would be to try to find out how it would be possible. How can you get there? What have you got to do? What is essential 
What introduction? How do you conduct yourself? How do you dress yourself? How do you comport yourself? What's your whole approach to be? Isn't it obvious? Well, you can multiply that by infinity. And there is a soul-seeking God. And if you don't stop to ask, how can I get into the presence of God? Well, I say it just means that you can't possibly be praying to God. We've got to realize something about God himself. And the moment we do that, we realize that certain things are absolutely essential before we can ever pray. We can't pray as we are. We have no standing. You see, the moment you begin to realize this, you say with Job, Oh, that I knew of some daysman who could come between us. Oh, that I knew of somebody who could take me by one hand and, as it were, take God by the other and bring us together. The moment we begin to realize something about God and the being of God, we realize how lost and helpless and hopeless we are. And we realize the need of someone, something to bring us into the presence of God. And that, of course, is the whole message of the gospel. To tell people, stop praying, get on with it, keep on with it, and no more, is to deny virtually the whole of the Christian gospel. For the gospel is here to tell us this, that there is only one way to God, and that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and did all that he did for this end, that he might bring us to God. That is why he said what I never tire of quoting in this generation that talks so glibly about prayer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There it is. And it's the teaching everywhere. Listen to the Apostle Paul teaching it to the Ephesians. Ephesians 2.18. For by him, he says, referring to our Lord, we both, the Jew and the Gentile, who are now believers, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And it's the only way. There is no entry into the presence of God. There is no prayer except through the Lord Jesus Christ by the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the only way. And for us to forget that for a moment is, I say, not only to deny the gospel, but to mean that we cease to pray at that point. Or if you prefer it, take the statement of the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 19. This is how he puts it. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's the way to pray. And it is the only way. And to tell all and sundry when they're in difficulties to start praying immediately and to keep on that they, they can do it any time they like is to me a denial of the whole of the New Testament gospel makes the cross of Christ entirely unnecessary and thus is surely to make despite of the very blood of the cross itself. It's a very serious matter. This impression that is given, oh yes, these preachers, they talk about their theology and their doctrine and so on, but they're complicating the whole thing. All you need to do is to turn to God and pray. You can't pray without this doctrine. You can't go into the presence of God except with the blood of Jesus. There is no other way of getting there.
There is no entry into the holiest of all without this particular offering. Even the shadows of the Old Testament were only temporary, but they at any rate realized that they needed an offering, they killed their animals, they took the blood. This is but a shadow. The truth, the real truth of the matter is that they're all pointing to this one offering of Christ once and forever, by which and by which alone there is any access into the presence of God in prayer. Well now then, let's be clear about these things. He maketh intercession only for the saints, not for anybody else. And it is our duty to teach people that, lest they may be deluding themselves and just treating themselves psychologically by imagining that they're praying. They're only talking to themselves. They say they feel greatly helped by it. I know, psychology can help you. By talking to yourself, you can help yourself a great deal. Or by sending up beautiful thoughts, you can make yourself feel much happier and better. But it doesn't mean that it's prayer. The Spirit only helps the saints because they're the only people who have any standing in the presence of God, who have any access into his holy presence. Then let us go on to a third point, which is what I would call types of prayer. Now what I mean is this. I notice that some of the commentators draw a deduction like this from this statement that we are looking at. That really the finest and the best and the highest type of prayer is just groaning. What they say is this, you see. They say, oh, there are many people who can be very voluble in prayer and offer long prayers and so on. But the real prayer, true prayer, is that prayer in which you can't say anything at all. You just growl. Now that is a deduction that is actually drawn by a number of commentators. And there are many who are ready to follow them in that deduction. But of course it is completely and entirely wrong. Now let me prove what I'm saying. Of course you see where the devil comes in. Wonderful excuse that for people who've never taken part in a prayer meeting. See, they're not these people who can pray in words, they only groan. They're such great saints that they never pray in words. That's why they don't take part in prayer meeting. But my dear friend, that's the wiles of the devil. And it's entirely contrary to scriptural teaching. What do I mean? Well, take uh, Hosea, if you like, 14.3. The prophet exhorting the children of Israel, take with you words, go back to him, he says. And he doesn't merely leave it at going back to God. He tells them that when they do go back to God, they've got to say certain things unto him. Take with you words, he says. Say unto him. Look at it there in that last chapter of the book of the prophet Hosea. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Asher shall not save us. We will not... So on. Well, now there it is. Again, that's quite enough in and of itself. The prophet was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. That's the teaching of the Spirit. The Spirit who at times so deals with us that we can do nothing but groan, at other times tells us to take words and gives us the words, instructs us exactly as to what we are to say. That, I say, is enough in and of itself. But, of course, the Bible is full of similar teaching. 
Look at the many prayers that are recorded in the scriptures. Some of the greatest and the most wonderful prayers that have ever been offered, they're recorded here in the scriptures. Look at many of the Psalms. Most of those Psalms, in a sense, are prayers, but they're in words. And very wonderful words, very eloquent words, very beautiful words. Words, not just groaning, but statements, words. Look at the prayers of Daniel that are recorded for us. Look at the prayer of Hezekiah. Don't you remember how he took a document once and spread it before the Lord and then pleaded on the basis of that? Now, these are, these are the great prayers of the Scriptures, laying the matter open before God. Not only that, we find some remarkable instances of uh, uh, prophets of God, mighty, holy men of God, not only praying in words, but pleading with God, reasoning with God using arguments with God. One of the best illustrations of this, of course, is to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. You remember how particularly in chapter 63 and 64 he does this. He's, he's literally pleading with God. Listen to this kind of thing in verse 15 of chapter 63. Look down from heaven, he says, and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Then he says, where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart? Return for thy servant's sake. Then, O oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow at thy presence. We are thine, he says, thou never bearest rule over them, they were not called by thy name. Return for thy servants' sake, the tribes of thine inheritance, and so on. You're familiar with that in the Psalms, and there in the prophets, in so many different places. The, the man praying not only uses words, but he ventures to reason with God and to argue with God and to plead with God, to remind God of his own character and of his own promises. Well now then, the Bible is full of that sort of thing. So it is a very false deduction to say that the highest form of prayer is just a groan or a sigh. Indeed, let me put it like this, as I tried to last Friday night. That isn't what the Apostle is saying here at all. What he's saying is that there are times when in exceptionally difficult circumstances, undergoing these trials and tribulations about which he's writing, the sufferings of this present time, we really are in perplexity and we don't know what to pray for. But this is unusual. This isn't common. This isn't the general condition of the child of God. This is only a very special case. And in that special condition, uh, we can do nothing but groan in the way that uh, we have seen, or perhaps just sigh. But that's not to be the norm of the Christian life. The Christian as a child is to talk to his father. He is to commune with his father. He is to speak to him and to listen to him. It is to be this constant conversation, as it were. That is prayer. That is true worship. Even as our Lord himself did so are we meant to do.
Therefore, let us beware that the devil doesn't trap us at this point and make us, I say, feel that uh, the fact that we can't pray and that we stammer and stutter and groan and never know anything, any liberty in prayer is a sign of great spirituality. It's the other way around. The more spiritual a man is, the more he'll pray. And the greater freedom he'll know in prayer, the greater liberty, the greater enjoyment. Very well then, let's examine ourselves very carefully at that point. But let me add this, that if we've never known what it is to groan in this way or to sigh, it is again indicative of something wrong with us. For the Christian does enter this state, it is an experience that the Christian should know. And the more one realizes the true character of the spiritual warfare, the more one will know something about this groaning and sighing. Not as something which replaces prayer, but as an occasional experience of one who has entered to such an extent into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings that he knows just a little of what it is to groan as our Lord himself groaned there at the grave of Lazarus and on other occasions. Very well then, there we have what I would call types of prayer. But I'm most concerned about that false deduction which is suggested to many by the devil. Well now then, having said that, let us close on this point. Some general rules concerning prayer in the light of all this. And of course, the text itself indicates that we all do stand in need of these rules. We know not what to pray for as we ought in these conditions. Very well then, is there no guidance for us in the scripture? Well, thank God we are given this great comfort that the Spirit is there interceding within us the whole time. But we can go beyond this, we can show elsewhere in the scripture how there is very practical advice and help given to us. It's the thing, as it were, that you fall back upon to realize the intercession of the Spirit. You don't start with that. That is your final comfort. When you really can do nothing, but you end with that, you don't start with that. You don't, the moment you're in difficulties, just sit back and groan and say, I don't understand. No, no. You do everything you can before you come to this. What can you do? Well, here are certain rules, it seems to me. The first thing always is to start with a realization of what you're doing when you pray if you like a realization as to who God is. Now there is something we can always do. Whatever our circumstances, whatever our conditions, start with a realization of who and what God is. And that you are in relationship with God. Now let me use it, let me use this illustration. Not only to save time, but because it puts the thing so plainly and so clearly. Whenever you find yourself in this position that you don't know what to pray for as you ought, what can you do? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can always worship God. You can always adore him. You can always praise him. Ah, but you say, I'm in difficulties now. Yes, I know you're in difficulties about this one thing. But you shouldn't be in any difficulty with regard to God. Very well then, if you can't talk to him about this one thing, and if you don't know what to say about this one thing, talk to God about something that you do know about. Now then, I've got a classical example. I read it at the beginning, Acts 4. That's exactly why I read that passage. 
Do you remember the story? Peter and John on trial because they'd healed the lame men at the beautiful gate of the temple. They're on trial. They're let off, but they're let off with a very severe warning. They're told if they go on preaching or teaching in the name of this Jesus, well, certain things are going to happen to them. They straightly threatened them, which undoubtedly means that they told them not only that they'd put them in prison, but that they'd put them to death, even as James the Apostle was put to death quite soon afterwards. Here they are, Peter and John, let out of the prison, let out of the court, and straightly threatened. They went back to their own company, to the church, and they reported this. What they said, of course, was that the authorities were determined to put an end to this Christianity. They were out to exterminate the church. They were out to put an end to all preaching or anything being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian church is, as it were, face to face with the end of all things. And do you remember what they did? They prayed. They lifted up their hearts to God with one accord and said, and what did they say? Now that's the great thing in that recorded prayer. Unlike us, they didn't start with themselves and their problem. They started with God. Though they're in this desperate condition, this is how they prayed. Lord, thou art God which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. See, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn or what to do. So what do they talk about? Well, not about that. They talk about what they're sure of, and that is that, Lord, thou art God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. They start by praising God. And you can always do that. It's always a safe thing to do. Whatever your perplexity, whatever your problem, when you don't know what to pray for as you ought, praise God, worship God, adore God. Remind yourself of who God is and ascribe unto him all praise and honor and glory. Now that's the universal teaching of the scripture. Paul in Philippians 4 teaches exactly the same thing. Philippians 4, 5 and 6. In nothing be anxious. Nothing. In nothing be anxious, but in all things. With prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. That's what he puts first, you see. Let your requests be made known unto God. You don't immediately become speechless because of your perplexity. No, no. You start with doing what you can, do what you know. And this is to worship and adore and to praise God. That's the way. And that is something that we can always do. Very well, there's my first suggestion. But here's the second one. Spiritual requests are always right because they are always in accordance with God's will. Spiritual requests. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. Prayer for the success of God's work and God's kingdom. That's always right. You can always pray for that. But the trouble with us all is, of course, that we're so concerned about our little problem and our particular difficulty, we forget everything else, as if this was the one thing in the whole universe. It isn't. Pray for the success of God's kingdom, for the spread of the kingdom, for the success of his work. Not only that. It's always a safe prayer to pray for greater knowledge of God, a greater knowledge of his love, a greater knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, a greater understanding of his love to you. You need never hesitate about offering such prayers. They're always acceptable to God. They're always well-pleasing in his sight. He delights in them. 
And the more we pray like that, the more God will be pleased with us. Prayer for greater holiness, greater sanctification, greater strength and help in the battle. Always right. You need never hesitate at all. Spiritual prayers, as I call them, are always right. And you need never be in any hesitation at all concerning them. And thirdly, I would say this. It is always right to plead the promises of God. Now, I've given you examples of that already, and I would universalize that as a principle and say that whenever you've got a clear promise of God, plead it. The promises of God are meant to be used. And likewise, quote scripture. Notice those people in Acts 4. They quoted the second psalm to God himself. Well, you say, what's the point of that? God is the author of this through the Spirit. What's the point of quoting his own psalm to God? Isn't that a waste of breath and a waste of energy? It isn't. It's true prayer. Analogies always break down, but you can understand it like this. Does a father ever object to a little child quoting his own words to him, reminding him of something that he said? No, of course he doesn't. He, he likes it. He enjoys it. He's always pleased when his own child or grandchild quotes his own words to him against himself, as it were, in order to get something from him. Well, God is our Father. You're always right when you quote the promises of God or when you quote God's own word to God. Now, there's no need to hesitate there. But now then, let me come to a second group of instructions, which are cautions. And these cautions are obviously necessary. We've already seen that in our exposition. I would lay it down as a general principle that we should exercise great care and caution concerning purely personal requests. Apart from what I've already said, I've been dealing with personal spiritual requests for growth, for a knowledge of God, for greater love, and so on. But now I'm concerned now about requests for ourselves outside these spiritual desires and spiritual requests. Here we've got to be very cautious, very careful. And especially when we come down to the matter of details. Otherwise, we may well find ourselves not only praying for something against the will of God, like what I quoted to you a fortnight ago, happened in the case of Moses and the case of the Apostle Paul with the thorn in his flesh, but for a still more serious reason. If you and I are too urgent and insistent in our particular requests with regard to personal things that we desire, we may very well bring upon ourselves most undesirable results. Let me read a terrible verse to you. Psalm 106, verse 15. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. Now, that's a reference to the children of Israel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. They kept on pleading with him for quails and for other things like that, matters of food and so on, and various other requests. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert, and he gave them their request, but sent 
leanness into their soul. You bombard God with certain particular personal material requests or certain other requests which you particularly want in your own life. Well, there is this possibility. This is the scriptural teaching that he let you have it. And you'll bitterly regret it. He may grant you your request. But because it wasn't a true request, not in your best interests, and because you wouldn't listen to him and his discouragements to you, he'll let you have your request, but you'll find leanness in your soul. And the day will come when you'll bitterly regret that you ever made that request. And you'll almost upbraid God with having answered you. But if you see the folly and repent, God will graciously forgive you again. And you will probably learn one of the great lessons of your spiritual and your Christian life. Let us be extremely careful when we come to these personal requests. The apostle, you see, he wanted that thorn to be taken out. God didn't grant him his request. And he came to see that it was a very good thing for himself. If that thorn had been taken out, it would probably have been the worst thing that could possibly have happened to the great apostle. This is the realm in which we don't understand. Let us therefore be cautious and careful in our pleadings for personal requests. But let me go on to a second point which I'll put like this. Where God's will is not certainly known, again, exercise great care and caution. If you're in that position that you don't quite know, is it to be this or that? And we are often in that position. Well now, you've got to be very cautious here. And you've got to exercise great care. What do we do? Well, I suggest this is what we do. First of all, utterly submit yourself to God and his will. Tell him so. Tell him that your one desire is not so much to do this or to do that as to do his will. That you want to know what his will is. That that's your supreme desire. And further, say this that you are ready to do his will and to be content with it, whichever it is. Though you may personally prefer to do this one on the right, tell God, if it's your will that I go on the left, I will go on the left, and I will gladly go on the left. Only to do thy will, my will shall be. Tell him that. Utter submission. Now that is something of which we're always capable. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Very well then, don't pray for anything in particular, but start by telling God that you're absolutely submitted to him. You, you require nothing but the knowledge of his will in order that you may do it. Then having done that, let your requests be made known unto him. In all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. That's what we can always do. Tell him what your request is but always having, first of all, put it entirely, as it were, into his hands. Then, having let your request be made known unto God, make absolutely certain that you've got within you the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Now, why do I put it like that? Well, because of the nature of the statement made by the apostle there in Philippians 4. He says, in nothing be anxious, but in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and, do that, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. So you must be sure that you are enjoying the peace of God that passeth all understanding. 
And if you're not, it's because you haven't surrendered it fully to God. You're holding on to something. You're not really willing for God to have his way with you. You must be certain that you are enjoying and that you go on enjoying the peace of God that passeth all understanding. You still don't know what's happening to you. You still don't know which is right, this or that. In a sense, you still don't know what to pray for as you ought. But you should always be enjoying the peace of God that passeth all understanding in your mind and in your heart. It is an absolute promise. And we should always make sure that we are enjoying it. My next, my third caution is this one. Never demand anything of God. Never claim anything of God. There's a great deal of teaching along this line today. Claim this or that. When you realize who God is, you don't claim. You make your request known. Don't claim. People claim healing and many other things. They get some sort of answer to their requests very often as the children of Israel did. But God knows it isn't always healing and some of us have to deal with the tragedies along that line. Be careful. Don't claim things. Don't demand Realize who God is. God, as I say, allows you to come as a child with that kind of sweet and engaging reasoning and pleading that we saw there in Isaiah 63 and 64. That's a very different thing from claiming, demanding, almost telling God that he has to do it. Reverence and godly fear, my friends. Our God is a consuming fire. The children of Israel demanded those things in the wilderness. They got their requests, but it was accompanied by leanness in the soul. Be careful then, I say, even about these desires for healing. Yes, I'm going to add, even a prayer for the salvation of somebody who's very dear to you. Don't demand it. Don't claim it. Pray for it. Don't demand it. Don't claim it. The Bible's got strange teaching about this. No saint has a right to, to argue that all his children must be saved. It's not true to scriptural teaching. It's certainly not true either to the history of the Christian church. Don't claim, don't demand. Let your requests be made known. Let them come from your heart. God will understand that. But don't demand, don't claim. We have no right even to demand revival. There are people tending to do that at the present time, it seems to me. Pray urgently, plead, use all the arguments, use all the promises. Don't demand, don't claim, never put yourself into the position of saying, if we only do this, then that must. No, no, God is a sovereign Lord. And these things are beyond our understanding. Never let the terminology of claiming or of demanding be used. So I put it finally like this. There is nothing that is wrong but everything that is right in telling God when we are in this position that we don't know the what to pray for as we ought. At that point, as I've been trying to indicate, there is nothing wrong in groaning or in sighing. God knows our sighs. He counts our tears. He that searcheth the hearts, he knows all about it. And don't feel that you're failing. And don't feel that the man who goes claiming and demanding things is a man of greater faith than you. No, no. He's a man of very small faith. Indeed, if he's not sinning at that point, God prefers the sigh of the humble saint that doesn't know, but that leaves it to him and who rejoices in the fact of the intercession of the Spirit within him. Very well. But then let's remember this as a final word. 
I've got already to make the doctrine complete. Are you not leading us to this point, says somebody, that we can therefore never be certain as to what we pray for? Far from it. I am still dealing with these exceptional circumstances. I have shown you matters about which you can pray freely. I want to end on this note. There is such a thing as the prayer of faith. What is that? James talks about it, you remember. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, heal the sick. What does Mark 11.24 mean? What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and you shall have them. What's that? How do we do that? How do I offer the prayer of faith? What am I told to do when I'm told what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them? How do I do that? Now, there are many people today who think that that just means this, that you say to yourself, I believe it. You try to work yourself up into saying, yes, I do believe it. It is the word of God. I do believe it. It doesn't mean that at all. It's almost the exact opposite of that. That's to be frantic. That's to be desperate. That's the kind of whistling to keep up your courage in the dark. That's the kind of attempt to persuade yourself. That isn't the prayer of faith. That isn't really believing that you receive them. What is this then? Oh, I'll tell you what it is. It is an absolute certainty that is given occasionally by the Holy Spirit himself. He puts a prayer into your mind and into your heart. He gives you a prayer and he tells you as he gives it that it's going to be answered. It's not a very common experience, but it is an experience. It does happen. It ought to happen to us more and more frequently. And as we grow in the school of prayer, it will. There is such a thing as that. It is an absolute certainty. Let me give you an illustration. You remember what we are told? I've already referred to it about Peter and John healing the men at the beautiful gate of the temple. Here's the men crying out, asking for arms of Peter and John, you remember. They hadn't got anything to give him. But we are told that Peter, fastening his eyes upon him, with John, said to him, Don't forget that fastening his eyes. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What was happening? I'll tell you what was happening. Peter wasn't trying an experiment there. Peter wasn't trying to work up a great faith, wondering whether it would come off or not. No, no. Peter was given a commission. Peter knew that that man was going to rise. There was no uncertainty. There was no doubt at all. He was given a commission. He was absolutely certain as he spoke the word that it would happen. Paul did the same with the lame men at Lystra. You'll find it in Acts 14. Beholding that this man had got faith to believe, he spoke and it happened. Of course. There were no failures in the case of the apostolic, uh, the apostles in this matter. As I've often put it, there are two things you notice about the work of the apostles which differentiate them from so many who claim great faith today and who claim to do things in in the name of faith. The apostles never announced beforehand that they were going to work miracles. They didn't say next Wednesday there will be meetings with miracles and healings. Never. They never said beforehand. Why? Because they didn't know beforehand. They never knew until the commission was given. But when it was given, they were absolutely certain. Secondly, there were no failures. Yes, failures before Pentecost, never after. They always knew. The commission was given by the Spirit, and it never failed. Now, I I use that as an analogy. There is a prayer given by the Spirit, and he tells you that it's going to be answered. That's the prayer of faith. It's not an experiment. 
It's not trying to persuade yourself or work yourself up. It is an absolute certainty that is given by the Spirit. And you know, therefore, when you are praying and making a request that your prayer is answered, you do believe that it is going to happen. And it does happen. Because it was given, and the assurance of it was given by the blessed Holy Spirit himself. Well, may God bless to us these considerations concerning this vital and important matter of prayer. Thank God that we have behind us always this ultimate consolation. But when we know not what to pray for as we ought, the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, for he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we know not how to thank thee again for the mystery and the marvel and the glory of thy ways with respect to us. We can but ascribe unto thee all praise and honor and glory. O Lord, open our understandings, we pray thee, that we may be kept from the pitfalls. O Lord, shed thy love abroad in our hearts, lest we may lust after things that are bad for us. O God, we surrender ourselves unto thee. We desire to know and to do thy holy will. Lord, grant that we may desire this more and more with the whole of our being. Thus, O Lord, we leave ourselves in thy loving and almighty hands. Be especially near, we pray thee, to those who are in this position of perplexity at this hour with respect to any given matter. Grant, O Lord, that they may thus humble themselves before thee, that they may enjoy that peace of thine which passeth all understanding and have the blessed experience of knowing that their minds and their hearts are being kept quietly, perfectly, and garrisoned in the knowledge of thy dear Son. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we shall be with him in the glory no longer groaning in this body but glorified in every respect everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.